realize that if you invest absolutely everything into one important relationship that you think is going to be the center of your life and identity and all the infrastructure of your life and and how you want to be you don't want to be seen as a person you want to be seen as part of this joint unit whether it's a, a monogamous couple or um, a, a family or I don't know a bocce club or something you know but whatever is that important to you don't lose your capacity to stand on your own feet and have your own connections and have your own resources. Welcome to the month of February. I just wanted to say that if you are interested in joining the Patreon for the podcast, you get access to a live Q&A with me on a monthly basis. And the one for February is coming up um, probably mid-month right around Valentine's Day. So if you are interested in that, if you join the Patreon at a level of $10 or more, you will have access to that Q&A. And you will also help keep this podcast free and open and available to anyone who needs it. For the future, I'm committed to keeping it open and not behind a paywall. So if you want to become a patron, just Google Dear Men Podcast and Patreon and it should come up right away. And um, we really appreciate the support. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am delighted to have with me today, Amy Guerin. She is the author of Stepping Off the Relationship Escalator, a research-based guide to relationship options. And a book that has personally blown my mind. So really happy to have you on. Um, happy to be here. Thank you for, for showing up and for writing the book and doing the kinds of work that you do. Um, I I would just like to say for the knowledge of my audience that I'm not usually nervous about episodes, but this episode I'm slightly nervous about just because I do think that the topic is so important and has such potentially big um, advantages for all of us in our lives. And I, I would say that the way that I have looked at my own life and thought about my future has changed based on this book. So that is where I would like to start. Um, no, so, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Best podcast episode ever. Um, so yeah, so I think most of my audience is going to be unfamiliar with the concept of the relationship escalator. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through what that is and a little bit about how you got interested in it. What, what happened in your own life that had you become interested in this topic? Okay. Well, they may not be familiar with the, with the phrase, but they sure as heck know what the relationship escalator is. It is the bundle of entrenched social norms that um, define and govern how intimate relationships, specifically relationships that include sex and romance, are, uh, you know, how they're supposed to begin and what the trajectory is the level of status that you get accorded because of the type of relationship you're in or how you might be missing out on status if you don't have a, a relationship that checks all the right boxes. And um, uh, it's it, it's basically this whole book is an exercise of yo fish. There's this stuff called water. You might want to think about it. And it, it talks about a lot. It defines what the norms are that make up relationships because some of them aren't really obvious. And um, it also, uh, I did a survey and I got 1,500 responses where people were writing the equivalent of like 2,000 to 2,500 word essays in their responses. Uh, and I quote over 300 of those responses in the book. So it's looking at basically what I asked people was, do you think the way you do intimate relationships is different? And if so, how? Uh, with few permutations of that. And um, people told me a lot of stuff that I thought I a lot of it I was expecting. And some of it was like, wow, I had no idea. 
Uh, the interesting thing about like asking people how they're doing relationships differently is that it highlights exactly what normal is supposed to be. Mm. And, and normal is literally according to social norms, according to all the stuff that we absorb. And because we see other people do it, we see it in media because some things get a lot of status and privilege and other things are considered to be taboo. And we kind of, you know, uh, absorb all that stuff. And it sits there as like a stew in the base of your skull. And you're like, I want closeness and connection and intimacy and companionship and sex and romance and support and all this kind of stuff. And that's all stewing there, but it all has to look this way or it's not real or it's not healthy or it's not valid or important, or my family isn't going to recognize it or something like that. Again, no pressure. Um, well, I mean, we're essentially talking about rom-coms, right? The Well, the to a certain yeah. I meet someone, we, we start dating, right? I mean, can you walk us just a little bit through like, what are the actual steps? Because I think oh. it's valuable. Hopefully with not as much drama as rom-com because drama works way better in films than in relationships. Um, Okay. So here's how it works. Um, You meet someone and you think they're hot. Um, You start talking to each other. You start dating. You start having sex. You fall in love. You stop dating others. You move in together. You merge your finances and the marriage kids death to you apart. It's a specific step, a set of steps that, Most people, when they hear that, it's like, yeah, that's what most people expect for a relationship. But because it's normal, people feel like this is just the natural course. It kind of feels like it has its own momentum. And that's why it's the bundle of these norms is the relationship escalator and not the relationship staircase. Well, it actually is the staircase, except that it's got all that extra power and momentum from decades and sometimes hundreds of years of social norms. So. It and the relationship escalator that that approach for relationships totally fine and valid. If that's what you want, great. Um, it, it's it's very fulfilling. Uh, like for instance, the pinnacle, the relationship escalator is a uh, monogamous, legal, cohabiting marriage, and um, there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with it. But like something that looks like that, if that's what you want, totally cool. And it's not the only option. And it helps to know what your options are and what some of the you know, building blocks that make up that escalator are, because maybe you want to do some parts of that escalator a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And also, even if you don't think you know anybody who wants to step off that escalator, I guarantee you do. Mm-hmm. And and the reason you don't know that you know these people is because they're not telling you. And why aren't they telling you? They are afraid that you will judge them mm-hmm. because you have absorbed a lot of social stigmas. You've absorbed a lot of bad messages about people doing relationships differently. And, you know, they're worried about what you're going to think about them. When you learn about what your what options for relationships are out there, that helps you have a bit more compassion and respect for people you already know and care about. Mm-hmm. I think a good example of this is, you know, I have, there's so much to say, but I think one of the, one of the potential examples is I have a client who is dating someone and they, they have some unconventional aspects of their relationship. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but one of the potential differences, not a potential difference, a difference they have is that she wants to have kids and he doesn't. And in the traditional relationship escalator, part of what I have observed in my reading of the book is, is I've begun to grasp just how fragile the norm, the normative relationship is. Meaning we only have two choices. We stay together or we break up. So I feel that on the escalator, there's not a lot of room for how do we each get our needs met in a creative way? There's not a lot of potential for that. So on the escalator, we look at these two people. She wants kids. He doesn't. Most of the time, that would mean they break up, right? Because we can't go, quote unquote, all the way with this relationship. We can't ride the escalator to the top, right? And, And one of the things that caught my attention in the book was, 
uh, couples and relationships where they wouldn't break up. She would raise a child with someone else, maybe a really, really close friend, um, maybe a friend of hers that's, you know, in the queer community and knows that they want to have different households already. Or on, or on her own and just not be sharing parenting responsibilities with her partner. Or on her own. I think that Mm -hmm. the, the interesting thing about, and the reason that this concept has been blowing my mind is that it's a fundamentally different conversation when we say, what are our needs and how do we get them met in our lives rather than, are we doing this or are we not? Are we doing this or are we not? Right. So again, sort of, you know, sexuality wise, if if I'm not getting my needs met in this relationship, it's very binary. It's like, okay, well, I guess that means we have to break up and breaking up when you are cohabitating, when you do have shared finances, when there are children involved, sometimes isn't necessarily the best choice for everyone involved. And so the, the idea of, of that is, is mind blowing in and of itself that there could be other solutions And it also brings up the idea of resilience, that it actually feels like there's a lot more resilience in a network of connections and a network of relationships. So let's play that scenario out. She finds someone that she's close with that also wants a child. Let's say it's another woman. And that woman is like, yeah, I want a kid too, but I haven't found the right relationship partner, but I really want a child. Like, let's do this. So they have a child, they figure out that the child will live primarily with that, with the woman that bears it, but this woman's going to be very involved and all of the things. And they're very happy with that. And she also gets to stay with her partner. So there is more resilience and there are actually more adults around for, for helping, right? Not just with the child, but just in general, he can cook meals, right? He can be of material assistance, even if he doesn't want to be a full-time dad, And now you have more resilience on the network. So there's a way that it almost mimics more of the village that we used to have versus the very small nuclear families or systems that we have now that don't provide a lot of resilience. So I'm just curious, did that come up at all in in your research about, oh, my life actually feels more full because I'm not on the escalator? Yeah. Oh, yeah all the time. And, um, uh, and even, like I said, for people who are on the escalator, they're like, I now have a basis to have more conversations with my partners and with my friends and with my family and with that very important relationship that often gets overlooked in all of this with yourself. That matters. Um, yes, the, this is why the relationship escalator is, it, it's not a phrase I came up with. I heard it when I was living in Oakland like a dozen years ago, and I just kind of ran with it. But it's an apt metaphor because the higher you get up off the escalator, the scarier and potentially more damaging it is to jump off or to fall off or to get pushed off. Um, and that has to do, there are five key norms that comprise escalator relationships. And one of these that often, like I said, like fish and water kind of fades into the background, is merging. And that's not just about moving in together. That's not just about blending your finances. That's about identity. That's about becoming a couple, a we more than a me, making the we more important. That's literally people, a lot of people in intimate relationships, and especially who really value the escalator model of relationships, the idea of breaking up, of ending that relationship, or even significantly changing or downshifting it in some way, um, feels like you are severing a part of yourself. It can feel like suicide. Um, it can it can feel like a threat to your life, not just to your identity. And um, that I can understand that it's re- that's a really valid experience, and also um, it's avoidable. I mean, not in terms of you can avoid the pain of a breakup, but you can learn how to, through your life, nurture a lot of connections and capabilities and uh, so that any relationship of any kind can end at any time for lots of reasons. What are you going to do then? If you don't accept that reality, you are setting yourself up for potentially 
an, a future that doesn't that isn't just painful because of the you know disorientation and dislocation of a breakup, but awful because you're impoverished, because you've lost your sense of family, because you've lost your friends because they were all your couple friends and you're not a couple now. Um, learning how to value other kinds of connections, even if you want to have a relationship that looks like the escalator in every other way and maintaining your own um, capabilities to take care of yourself, to have your own um, income and housing and childcare and transportation, and healthcare and all that stuff. Even if you're not necessarily doing it at this moment, if you know that you have the ability to do those things, um, it means that it, uh, some people say, when you're saying that, it sounds like you're saying, make it easier to walk out. I said, no. Um, make it easier to make better decisions because dependency and desperation never make decisions better. Mm. If you are making a decision, the worst thing you can do is make a decision from a place of fear. Yes. And I think part of what you're pointing to is (laughs) another example of stepping off the relationship escalator would be if there's a couple and they are dating and then they move in together and they start fighting and it's getting really difficult. It feels again, very binary and brittle is the word that comes to mind of like, oh, well, I guess we have to break up instead of, hey, maybe we should try not living together again. And, you know, yes, I think that there's a lot of potential for growth and sometimes it can be valuable to work through attachment stuff and get, you know, another person to help you with relationship stuff. And Sometimes a solution can also be practical. It can be, let's downshift. Let's take a step down the escalator, or I guess it would be a staircase in that case, because we're now conscious and aware of where we are and able to make different choices. Instead of, we have to break up. I guess it's not working. It's like, let's try restructuring this again and seeing what happens. Because that's the thing about the escalator is it does feel like there's an inherent sense of we're failing somehow if we're not moving up the escalator. You know, I am in a relationship and I do feel that pressure of like, well, where's it going? Right. You got to know where it's going. And there's a quote in your book about something like asking, you know, let's be real. When people are asking, where is this going? It's not going anywhere good. And often, think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it is, of course, but I, but the, one of the things that sort of blew my mind about considering my own you know, potential future is what if I don't cohabitate with a partner? That's not because I've always assumed that this is going to be my future. And a lot of the people I talk to, there's this assumption again with the norm, eventually there or I'll somehow that will be how I am. But what if that's not? Not, if- not not just that you're going to live together, but you're going to share a bed. You're yeah. going to share finances. You're yeah. going to spend all your free time together. Yeah, exactly. there's a lot of fine print. And yeah. what if that's not? then it's like, wow, that's that's interesting. What if I have a different kind of future? What if that's not, what if cohabitating is not part of it, but I still get to have sex. I still get to have intimacy. I still get to have closeness because to your point, we've bundled all of those in this gigantic ball of yarn that is the norm. That's the norm is you get all of these needs met all in this one bundle. And then to your point, it's terrifying to consider that bundle going away which is not very resilient versus I get some of my needs met here. And I live, I live in a different place, right? I live either by myself or with housemates or with friends. And so if I'm making the choice to relate with my relationship partner, it's coming from a different place than if we're cohabitating, our finances are entangled. There's a lot more pressure on that relationship. And so it's a lot scarier to think about doing anything differently, right? Rocking the boat has a lot more consequences than if you don't have quite as much entanglement going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's entanglement is, can be valuable in a lot, lots of ways, and it can exist in lots of different forms and lots of different kinds of relationships. Um, but the key is that, um, all parts of this escalator are optional, every step on it. They actually don't have to be done in a particular order. And if you, when you approach something as an option, then that gives you an ability to explore or experiment instead of saying, oh, let's move in together. And all the fine print that that means is let's try living together. See what that's like. Let's try for six months or a year. 
you know, give it a go. And then we'll talk about it at that point and see what we both think at that point. This is valuable. And it's especially valuable to have these kinds of negotiations or anything, you know, like, well, uh, he, my, there's a big party coming up at my work and I got to bring a plus one. Why don't we try that this time and see how we both feel about it? You know, and, and you know, is that something you're into? Do you actually want to do that? Does that? Is that something that's, that you're into? When you approach things that way with curiosity and negotiation, then that gives people permission to consider options. It's, and if somebody is really freaked out or scared or totally unwilling to negotiate, that they think there's something wrong with you for even approaching it as a negotiation, that's important information about them. Yeah. Because guess what? Relationships always change because people change. That's what people do. Mm. And if you are entering into a relationship with somebody who is unwilling to discuss and negotiate about change, who's unwilling to try things before saying, yes, this is definitely what we're going to be doing for the rest of our life. That means at some point your relationship is really going to get hitched up on the rocks of reality. And uh, you know, learning how to negotiate relationships, it's a lot easier to set that precedent in the beginning. It's not impossible to set it later on. There are some strategies for setting that precedence for renegotiating relationships later on. But the best thing you can do early in a relationship or as early as you can once you realize you want to do it is to find ways to negotiate and to give people room to have their emotional response to it because how somebody when somebody's not expecting something and when you're going away from social norms people are encountering a lot of unexpected stuff you know say well think about this okay and let's let's talk about it in a week or or whatever mm-hmm. and give people time to kind of process their stuff and then sit down and negotiate with it when you do that then you have the option to try things and see how it works and you set the example of you know, that almost worked, but how about we live together, but we have separate bedrooms? I really think, feel like I sleep better. I just need my own personal space. Or, yeah, I love spending free time with you, and my friends also matter to me a lot, or my family also matters to me a lot. Can you, you know, I, I don't want to ha- set the expectation that we are socially joined at, a hip, at the hip. I do want to do something socially with you. And it also matters to me to have time with other people and to have time to myself Mm -hmm. Um, and setting those kinds of things um, early in a relationship or introducing them, you know, later on in a relationship means that you are cultivating an ability to adapt to real people in real situations. And guess what? This is life. You're going to have to do that one way or another. You might as well be conscious about it. I think that's the word, right? It's, it's conscious awareness. And I think that's one of the things that, I became aware of in reading it was how much I have assumed about my life and about what my life would look like or will look like based on the culture I come from and how freeing and almost, I'm going to use the word disorienting that is because when there's a sort of plan or idea or ideal, right? Even if we don't get to that ideal, we have the concept in our minds and there's, there's a certain comfort and familiarity in you know, what, what I'm, what I'm doing or where I'm going. And when that's questioned or that boat is rocked, there's like, oh, wow, if I'm not going to be doing that, then what am I going to be doing? And what is it going to look like? And who's going to be involved? And that is a lot more conscious than just drifting along, assuming. And I think that one of the things that I've noticed in my work with my clients is you know, a lot of the folks that we work with are divorced or divorcing. They have blended families. They're co-parenting with someone and they're in relationships or starting relationships, romantic relationships. And there, there is this assumption for a lot of them, like, oh, well, this has to go somewhere. You know, eventually we're going to be doing the same escalator I just got off of rather than what if that wasn't the case? What if there was some other way to do it that felt really good to all parties involved? And and I think there's a way that in our culture, like I said, it can feel like stasis. It can feel like, oh, well, if it's not, if we're not going up the escalator, then we're just stuck. Then what are we doing? What is the value of this relationship if it's not, quote, going somewhere? Instead of thinking about right now in the landscape of my life, 
are my needs getting met? How are we feeling about this? Do we feel satiated in terms of how much connection we're having in terms of the kind of sex we're having, the, the, the amount of closeness, the number of nights a week we actually want to see each other? Because for some couples, especially in the in the book and the what I part of what I loved about the book was all of the personal quotes, all of the stories of people that are actually living off the escalator. And a lot of them talked about feeling fulfilled right? They yeah. feel fulfilled. And, and one of the, you know, structures that you mentioned was uh, solos, people that are choosing to identify as solo. Sometimes they live alone. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they live with housemates. It's not necessarily who they're living with, but they're primarily living their life that way. And then they have wonderful connections. They have wonderful connections with really close friends, with lovers of different, you know, statuses in their life or people they see sometimes, uh, you know, some more than others, et cetera, but they're, but they feel satiated. They feel fulfilled. They have closeness and intimacy versus some of the married clients that I've worked with married or divorcing who've lived in sexless relationships with no intimacy or sense of closeness or team for decades. I mean, decades of living cohabitating, but not feeling nourished not yeah. feeling the love, not feeling the connection. So it's so interesting that you can have an alternate structure, but feel emotionally fed versus the traditional structure and feel starving. Yeah. There is um, one of the unfortunate parts of the relationship escalator is the um, uh, the part of the fine print says that the only way you will really know if you've done this escalator thing right is if one of you dies and nobody has fucked anybody else on the way. And um, and it doesn't really matter how you feel in that relationship otherwise. It's still a success if you made it to the point that one of you dies and the, none of you had sex with anyone else. It's, it's like, so that's, that's a pretty messed up finish line. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you would ask how I got interested in this topic and it kind of touches on some of the things you were talking about. I rode that escalator all the way up to the top. I, um, I uh, met and fell in love with a wonderful guy and we, you know, had all the romantic courtship and then we moved in together and uh, merged our finances. And then we got legally married. Uh, we bought a house and that was going pretty well until we both realized that, okay, we don't really like living with each other that much. And probably neither of us really likes living with an intimate partner at all. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, personally, I grew up with um, five out of six kids. I'm used to having people around. I have a couple of housemates. They're great. Uh, and, um, but, you know, we, we eventually decided to renegotiate our relationship. This didn't happen the easy way. It happened. I started cheating on my former spouse. And I only did that for a little while because my former spouse, he he knows me better than anybody. And it's like, no, I can't deceive him. And I love him. And I don't want to, you know. So finally, it's like, no, this is going on. And we talked about it. And actually, it was fairly, not entirely, but fairly drama-free. And we're like, yeah, this monogamy thing, it's not working for me. Is it working for you? No, not either. Okay, then let's talk about that. We adopted polyamory and we had some other relationships and that worked out pretty well. And then through time, we decided, yeah, no, this, it isn't just about monogamy. We just, we're not really good at living together. We manage money entirely differently. Um, and, and we both just need our own emotional space. And over time, as happens in many allegedly successful monogamous relationships well the sex and the romance goes away and then if you just have a lot of irritation otherwise on top of that it's like that's that's going nowhere good so um we eventually uh, got unmarried we we legally divorced we sold the house moved apart and he through that whole process and to this day remains one of my closest and dearest friends Getting unmarried saved our relationship. As a matter of fact, he owns a house across the street from me right now. Aww. And 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 he's been in my life for 30, almost 34 years at this point. Uh, I love him to death. And there are some times when I want to strangle him, but likewise, I'm sure. And then when that happens, guess what? 
he has his space over there across the street and and um and and it works out really well but what's funny to me it used to annoy me now i can just laugh about it is when people who even people who know me very well know him very well say oh wow it's really great that you're on good terms with your ex like this is like this should be unusual in some way yeah like he hasn't been one of the dearest people in my life and and on my side the whole time and also i don't call anybody an ex that i still want involved in my life we used to be married. We're friends who used to be married. And um, I and I just those little things, they sound like little things um, ca- talking about getting unmarried or a relationship not ending with a divorce, you know, or moving out and having things get a lot better. Um, all those things, they individually, they just sound like, oh, it's just a detail. Right. But put them together. Look at how much social power those assumptions have. The relationship escalator isn't just popular. It is privileged. Mm -hmm. There's a hell of a lot of status. This is why legal marriage is a thing. Okay. Legal marriage is essentially institutionalized privilege for couplehood. Mm -hmm. There's a whole, that's why we have the wedding industrial complex. You know, that's why it's such a big deal. This is why people celebrate your wedding anniversary but not so much about hey man my best friend has been in my life for 50 years yeah oh okay i guess that's kind of cool right you know um it, it, it there's so much privilege that goes along with it and um aside from the logistical and emotional disruption that can come from breakup from a relationship that's gone up the escalator a long point uh, um the part that people don't talk about it that much is you're going to lose status if you go from being socially visibly coupled up to not coupled up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Singleism is a thing. There's a great um, uh, sociologist, Bella DePaulo out in Santa Barbara, who has written a lot about the kinds of discrimination and prejudice that single people, people who aren't in any partnership experience. Now it's not a, and again, why I got interested into this is not just that I'm polyamorous. I am still polyamorous to this day. I have two lovely sweethearts. They are fabulous. Bill and Ted, the excellent adventure. And um, but I am solo polyamorous. This is not an oxymoron. Solohood is different from being single. Single, it, it can be an identity, and many people really embrace that. Bella DePaul is very eloquent on that, but it's also largely defined by a relationship status that at this time you do not currently have any significant relationships involving romance or or sex that are especially important to you that have achieved any level of depth you can date around and still be single okay but solo is i live on my i have my own two feet under me my life I I am my own home base. I don't merge my identity or the infrastructure of my life with any intimate partners. Okay. I don't, I don't want to live with an intimate partner. I don't want to marry them. I don't want to have finances. I've never wanted to have kids, but that's, that's just because I watched alien too many times when I was a kid, you know, (laughs) I ever want to get pregnant, But, but, um, solo. So solo people can and do, have deeply enduring relationships. Um, sometimes those are exclusive, are monogamous. Often people who um, choose the monogamous version of solohood is referred to as living apart together. And there's, if you Google that, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff about that. And it's mostly monogamous people talking about it. But solo polyamorous means that basically I do deep, enduring, intimate relationships. They just are not exclusive. And I'm not moving in with anybody. Because for me, I enjoy my relationships better. I bring my best self to them. And I can be there more for my partners when I am not so concerned that my housing, finances, life infrastructure, retirement planning, healthcare, whatever, is all tied up in that relationship continuing to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. I have more room to accept my 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 sweethearts and the other close people in my life, all my close people who I value very much, have a good family of choice, and um, that 
by not merging myself that closely with them, we can actually have a more resilient relationship that ends up deeper because we are not so worried about how we're going to affect each other that we can't really be there for each other. Yeah, it's such a good point about being able to bring one's best self to the relationship and to, you know, there's there's a lot that happens. You, you also, you know, you mentioned, yeah, having separate bedrooms, even just having a space that's your own. We, I, I will just own it for me. I have not thought about that as quote unquote normal. I have thought about that as, oh, that's an interesting idea. But when I think about the escalator and my assumptions about a couple, I assume they will move in together and they will move into the same room. They will sleep in the same bed every single night. And to be perfectly honest, that freaks me out. I don't yeah. sleep that well next to someone. And so I'm like, wow, how am I going to you know, cross that hurdle someday? And it's never occurred to me that, I mean, it hasn't truly occurred to me that I could prioritize each of us have our separate room. You know, for example, another one that I was thinking about as you were sharing was um, frequently I, as a sex and relationship coach, will ask people, okay, what are you wanting? What are you looking for? What What's your intention? What do you want in this part of your life? And almost inevitably, this is what people say. Well, you know, I'm looking for someone who dot, 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 right? I'm looking for someone who like, I share a sense of humor. I'm looking for someone who I feel like I click with. I'm looking for, so they- Like, like it's a job interview. Yeah. <laughs> and they're automatically assuming I'm looking for a partner who meets lots and lots of my needs. And, and there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not saying there's something wrong with this, but what I'm saying is what I don't hear is I want a life full of intimacy and connection. I want to feel overflow in my social calendar, that there's lots of of people that I care about, that care about me, that I feel supported by, that I'm supporting. I want, you know, I don't hear about intimacy or, you know, diversity of connection. I hear about like, I'm looking for someone who, which I think is pretty indicative of our culture, again, with the ball of yarn saying, here's how you get all of those needs met. And it looks like this. And so there's enormous pressure on every relationship, right? You go on a a dating site, you meet someone, it's it's going well. And then you run into these things that we're talking about. We don't agree on this, or one person wants kids and the other doesn't, or fill in the blank. And it's like, well, I guess we're done, right? Because we don't fit every single checkbox together rather than, oh, okay. I hear that you, you know, you live with your elderly mother who you're caregiving for. And this is, you know, important to you and whatever the structure is, it's like, this might never change, right? You might never want to live with me. Does that mean we can still be relating? It's it's challenging the assumptions about it's got to look this certain way. And I love that um, example you gave of, you know, your, your um, former husband <laughs> be, living in the house across the street. You get to relate a lot. You're close, you're connected, you're deep friends. You we know, share love- custody of a very elderly cat. You know, elderly I, cat. I, I bring him across the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved your description of that, of that, those transitions that you went through with him and, but maintaining the connection, maintaining the emotional connection. And I think, like you said, it's so, it's such anathema to our culture to do that, right? Everyone's like, wow, it's great that you're on great terms with your ex. And exactly to your point, it goes against what we think about. We think about it being contentious and impossible to stay connected or to shift our relationships rather than that's actually better. It's actually better. It's more normal. It's more resilient. It's better for the kids. It's better for everyone involved if we can figure out how to do this and how to be a little bit more flexible in the way that we move or shift things around. Yeah, you can have your checklist as much as you want. And it's great when people check a lot of the boxes you want. But every person is a real, complete human being with their own needs, their own feelings, their own desires. And they matter just as much as you do. And um, every person is a mixed bag. You're not going to find everything you want. But if you have that skill of saying, let's try this, or, hey, we're a little bit different this way. Maybe we can negotiate around that. Having that skill to have those conversations, it might feel really awkward and scary 
at first, um, but the more you can practice with them and maybe start with some lower stakes things. Yeah. We don't really need to eat dinner together every night, do we, you know, or something like that. Just something that, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's some emotional content to it. There's some significance to it, but it's not like I'm going to go take out a mortgage on another house, you know? Uh, <laughs> so if you can negotiate about it, it's, it's important, but again, I'm going to come back to don't ignore the important role that status plays here. Okay. People will go to enormous lengths and do immense harm to themselves and others simply to maintain status, whether it's social status, familial status, or just their own idea of what a, a normal adult should be or should want or okay status there's a lot of reasons why it exists but when it comes to your deepest and uh, most personal and intimate relationships it helps to throw it out the window this by the way comes into uh big time with um polyamory uh which is one form of many forms of consensual non-monogamy um because couplehood is so privileged and because you know especially couplehood that appears at least on the surface from the outside to be exclusive that means that in polyamory often people who are not part of that highly socially visible couple um they're it, it's expected that they're going to be complicit in concealing their own relationship with you, that they're going to expect that your existing partner is primary and has to have a lot of power over, over your relationship and that you don't have, you are not on equal footing with your own partner in terms of negotiating your relationship with them. And, you know, that hierarchy is a thing but be conscious of it. And if you care, if you choose to practice it, or if you find yourself exercising, you know, privileged couplehood and in any way, remember that the other people who are impacted by it, they are real human beings. They matter just as much as you do. And you might try negotiating with them rather than dictating to them. Yeah. Um, I have a great example of this. One mm-hmm. of my friends is, is Polly and she was dating and had gotten pretty close to a man who was in an open marriage and the man and his wife had an agreement that he would be home for dinner every night um, during the week. And my friend got into a car accident and she was hurt and she actually broke limbs. I mean, it was a pretty bad car accident and she reached out to him for help. And this was around dinner time, and he chose not to go to help her because he had an agreement with his wife yeah. and a rule, I guess, is what you would say in your book, which I think is a good distinction between rules and agreements. And that was, I think, an example of the sort of the mess, the beautiful mess and the reality of relating with multiple people that was deeply distressing to her. It was it she felt very diminished. Um, to your point, like I don't have power in this relationship. It's a little bit like the only power I have is to leave. (laughs) I don't, I don't have, and she didn't have a real relationship with his wife. They had never all met. It wasn't, you know, there's a lot to learn for, for couples or people that are going into the world of polyamory. And I think what you're pointing to is, viscerally important, which is, um, it is important to talk about power. It is important to talk about inclusion and not just as a buzzword, but genuinely, what does this look like? How do we deal with, with inclusion and, and repair? How do we deal with it when someone has been harmed, which she was, she was harmed. And there was a strange triangulation thing where it felt like she had to deal with that hurt and harm and repair only with the man. She wasn't sort of quote unquote allowed to talk to his partner, even though that partner was involved in the situation. And that is I think an example of what you're talking about of the, the status that's conferred on uh, we might call it primary partners. That's a term that we, that is used a lot, arguably not the best term, but that, that social, um, contract that we have around, like you said, this looks like 
right? It looks like, like the escalator couple, right? This couple is married and they go to PTA meetings together and they're, you know, they have a certain status. And so people outside of that are sometimes relegated to second-class citizen. And that comes, that can come with real harm. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, one of the things I liked that you said in the book was, um, coming at it from a more egalitarian perspective and understanding that, yeah, things will shift and be negotiated over time. And that's to be expected rather than I think a lot of folks starting out, I think in non-monogamy or poly sort of are like, well, we're going to have our rules and we're going to have our agreements and it's going to be like this. And there's a, a feeling of rigidity around it rather than we're exploring a new territory. And here's where we're yeah. starting. Um, with a with a recognition that we will be shifting, things will shift, and we will grow in different ways, which is much different than we've got to make sure we protect this relationship that we have because there's threats coming from the outside. And there was something poignant you said about seeing others as teammates instead of threats is yeah. a sort of inherent shift in that in that kind of dynamic. If if you claim to love somebody yet you constantly cast them as an invader or a villain or a threat, there's something wrong with there, you know. Um, and that applies even within a monogamous relationship. I'm sure you've seen this kind of oppositional dynamics come up. But this, even putting aside polyamory and other kinds of consensual non-monogamy, it gets back to the point we I, I was originally talking about about not losing and continuing to maintain throughout your, your your life a web of useful and valuable and loving and kind and caring connections with other people that are deep, that you are committed to, that you, you will sometimes have to say, hey, this romantic partner over here, I've got a commitment to this dear friend of mine and this matters and I'm going to continue to do this thing on a regular basis because yeah. that person... It has that role in my life. Okay. Um, one thing that is another unfortunate side effect of the traditional relationship escalator is part of the fine print is your friends shouldn't matter as much. Mm -hmm. And if they do matter to you, this is the really cruel part. It's okay you know, to, to just like ghost on them because you got this, this romantic couplehood over there. And they should understand and defer to that. They should be unilaterally happy about you, even though you have effectively ditched on your relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, when that relationship escalator you know, thing doesn't work out, they're supposed to welcome you back and be there and help you nurture all your emotional pain and help you get on your feet until you ghost them again. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty messed up. Um the, the whole thing about learning about the relationship escalator, yes, there are things like monogamy and learning that, well, first of all, if you decide to practice hierarchy in polyamory or if you decide that when you get a romantic partner, you're going to ghost your friends, okay, tell people about that. Mm -hmm. Don't let them find that out as a shock after they have invested a lot of energy and time and emotion into building a connection with you. It doesn't matter if it's a polyamorous new partner or if it's if it's a dear friend, mm -hmm. you know, or or even, you know, if it's a colleague that you really, you know, rely on to collaborate and you spend a lot of time with them on something and suddenly you're gone from it. Um, it, it just makes sure that you are being honest with other people. And with yourself and and realize that if you invest absolutely everything into one important relationship that you think is going to be the center of your life and identity and all the infrastructure of your life and, and how you want to be, you don't want to be seen as a person, you want to be seen as part of this joint unit, whether it's a, a monogamous couple or um, a, a family or, I don't know, a bocce club or something, you know, but whatever is that important to you, um, don't lose your capacity to stand on your own feet and have your own connections and have your own resources. Because life happens. And I'm I'm 56 now, okay? The older I get, the more I realize, hey, life happens and 
you know, we need all the love and care and connection we can get. And if you just put it all in, it's marriage is called a greedy institution for a lot of reasons. But if, if you put everything in that and let everything else fall by the wayside, including yourself, your relationship with yourself, you're going to regret that at some point. Mm, yeah, unless seems- you're unless you're the lucky spouse who dies first. You know? <laughs> but yeah. Well, it's interesting you're talking about the um, the other relationships outside of the primary relationship. And one thing that I've, you know, toyed with is let's say that my partner and I did open our monogamous container and we're like, oh, we're gonna try this out. And I meet someone, then I need to explain to that person where I'm at you know, to your point, before I bond with them, before we get close and they're looking at me being like, wow, she's really great. I would love to ride the escalator with her. And then you after a this, month, I'm like, by you, the way, yeah, I'm you skipped a big step there. The, here's a big step and everybody misses this. When, if you want to venture into non-monogamy, don't start by finding people to date or have sex with. Start by making friends mm. and finding community. And and just get to know other people who are doing this, not as people that you want to go out and have sex with, okay? Not as people that you're falling in love with, but as, as friends and community, because social learning is a thing. You will avoid most of the really terrible mistakes if you have friends who understand the situation that you can talk things over with and who can share perspectives and experiences with you. Okay. And that's better than online discussion groups because they are valuable for something, but you want to really get to know people and let them get to know you. If you take a year or so, okay, to do that, rather than just jumping right in and putting a profile up on OkCupid and I'm ready to date and yeah, because guess what? Your emotions are going to, are going to surprise you in all kinds of ways and other people's emotions are going to surprise you. And friendships and community ties have a lot more room for um, resilience. If you're having a bad reaction to something, or if you're really enthusiastic about something, it's probably not going to disrupt your friendship and community ties, and it's a safer place to learn. In addition to doing reading and maybe you know meeting with a coach or a counselor, um, but just jumping into it, oh, that that almost always goes badly. Yeah. And it seems like it's a it's a pretty common thing that happens. And yeah. that I guess is the, you know, where I was going with that was if I imagine being in that scenario and meeting someone sort of out in the world and having a conversation like, hey, I'm in a monogamous or I'm in a relationship, I'm in a primary relationship, and I'm interested in getting to know you and possibly dating you, et cetera. It's it is quote unquote abnormal. I feel when I imagine that scenario, I imagine having to do a lot of explaining and it, it's, it's like, it's not the norm. And if that yeah. person is, interested it's not, it's not just driving, that it's not the norm they might not go out with me. They might not be interested in getting to know me at all because it's like, well, if I can't be, go all the way with you, what's the point of even investing in you at all? So there is that not- all or nothing thing again. It is not just that it's not the norm. It's that the relationship escalator is privileged. It has status and other choices are stigma stigmatized. And you're going, if you're going to step off that escalator in any way, like maybe, maybe you're asexual. Okay. And you, you want to date, you want to have deep relationships, just sex just isn't your thing. And you, you mentioned that to somebody that is extremely stigmatized. And, uh, and because what people who are asexual here is, Oh, you want to be just, friends look at the diminishment of that word just status is incredibly important to all this the more if you learn nothing else from thinking about and learning about the relationship escalator is that hey man there's a whole lot of status attached with this and giving up status really kind of sucks but holding on to status often is exactly what will prevent you from having great relationships and a great life Mm. And that sort of brings us full circle back to, you know, what are you looking for? What are you wanting? What do you desire? If we expand that to not just I'm looking for someone who, then it gives us a lot more precision 
I'm looking for cuddling. I miss holding someone and being held. I'm looking for intimacy. I want a person or people that I can laugh with, that I belly laugh. I miss belly laughs. You know, it it's it it's it has you define what you're looking for in a, in a much more precise way. And I think there's a lot of value to that because then, like we've said, it's like, okay, maybe that doesn't all happen from the same person. No, no. It usually doesn't all happen from the same person. I mean, occasionally that, that that's probably true in some cases, but my God, it's got to be exceedingly rare. And, but here's the thing. This is why I said, have these conversations and make friends. Okay. It's another reason why friends and community are a superpower. Um, when you get to know more people who are, you know, diverging from social norms, from relationships in whatever way you want to, when you get to know them as people, guess what? They know other people. <laughs> You're, when, when you expand your social circle, that brings not to treat friends and community as basically hooks to, to find people that you can hook up with. Okay. But you, when your social circle changes, it will become easier to meet people who are more aligned with certain things that are important to you. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and that, that's something that um, a lot of people just completely underestimate, but I, especially for men, um, straight men, yeah, straight men in Western cultures, really got messed up messages about friendship. And I mean, if you want to learn how to have better intimate relationships, learn how to value your friendships, take them seriously, show up for people, be emotionally vulnerable to your friends and be there for them. And um, if you learn how to do that, then it takes a bit of the pressure off that escalator. Even if you want everything else to be on the escalator, you won't feel like you are in this isolation tank emotionally, which is what a lot of the fine print of the relationship escalator is, that this is the one person you are supposed to be emotionally close to and confide in, um, that this is the one person that you should always bring important things to first. Like that isn't scary as hell when your life is all merged with them. You know, I have friends who have gone through gender transitions after decades of monogamous marriage, and they still want to love this person and be their spouse. And they are legally able to still be their spouse now, but they are so scared to talk about it. And a lot of times it's, it's portrayed as, well, my spouse betrayed me by not discussing this with me first. They went and talked to, you know, the, all these other people about, it. yeah, why do you think they did this? Because it was friggin' scary and they needed to get their think, act together about what they wanted to do. And this may not be as dramatic as a gender change. It could be something like, I don't really want to live in this town anymore. Or, um, you know, we had this vision of how we were going to do retirement. I want to do something different. You know, or I'd really like to travel the world for a year. You know, these are anything that's going to be a huge um, departure from how you were planning to do life um, that would affect that whole bundle that gets tied up in the escalator. Those conversations are scary. The more people you have that you can bounce ideas off of and talk to as real people who you get to know them and listen to them. And care about them. And don't just use them as, as your own sounding board. Be there for them. Value those relationships. Then how you'll have a better idea of what you do and don't want in a relationship. And you're going to do relationships better. So as we start to wrap here, I'm wondering if you can walk us through a little bit of your own journey and where you are now. Because it does sound like essentially you exited a an unfulfilling relationship dynamic not the friendship with the man you were formerly married to but the it wasn't working the structure of it wasn't working and you exited that structure and created a different kind of life so mm -hmm. what is your what is your sort of world like now and and how fulfilled it's, do you feel it's awesome my life I, uh, honestly, I mean, yeah, I have my ups and downs by other people, but I get to live my life almost entirely on my own terms. Um, and uh, so I'm solo polyamorous. I uh, 
and I'm self-employed too, which has a lot in common with solo polyamory, by the way. Um, if you want to understand solo polyamorous people better, talk to your self-employed friends and just apply that business thing to relationships and it works much the same way. Um, and uh, so I have uh, several people who are very close to me, a few friends that I consider really family of choice. They are my soul sisters and my soul brothers and my soul thems. Yeah, they're not all gender binary. And um, and I have a wonderful, wonderful uh, community of people around here. I'm fortunate that I live near Boulder, Colorado. And in this area, there's a weekly polyamory discussion group, discussion and support group that I've been going to for years. And uh, wow, I, I had all my close friends, almost all of them came to me through that group. And uh, so I, among my close people, I have a large, you know, uh, family of origin. None of them live near me. They're all on the East Coast. I'm in Colorado, but I love them, you know, and, you know, we have our ups and downs with them too. But uh, some of them I'm very close to, and I'd choose for them to be family, even if it wasn't this whole like blood or marriage thing. And then I have my two sweethearts, uh, Bill and Ted, The Excellent Adventure. Um, and they are both solo also. Uh, uh, one of them considers themselves to be um, uh, polyamorous. And in fact, he has uh, another uh, partner. Uh, who I had the fortune of introducing him to. It's wonderful. That's what in, in polyamory land we call metamor, your partner's other partner. So he's had his his boyfriend for uh I guess four or five years now. And and he and he and I have been together for six years. And uh that that's just all great. And then the other one considers himself monogamous for his own reasons. I mean, he just really doesn't want to have more than one sexually or romantically intimate relationship at a, at a time. He values other things more than mutual exclusivity. He he really values um, caring, kindness, honesty, emotional presence, having a rich inner life. He has very deep friendships that mean a great deal to him. And he's a major introvert and needs his alone time. Guess what? We all live in different places. One of them's like two miles from me. The other one's about like 30 miles from me. And I see them, I spend a night with each of them once a week, most weeks. And we chat, you know, by text throughout the day. And, um, and that's, it's, it's really lovely. Um, and you live by yourself or you have housemates? No, I, I have two housemates, uh, again, self-employed, you know, never have just one income stream, <laughs> but they're, they're really great guys. And, um, in charge of it all is my very elderly cat who is absolutely the boss of everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and my four among my close people is my former spouse uh, who lives across the street. And, um, but here's the thing. Um, I have a lot of resilience. Life has gone sideways on me a lot of ways at different times. And it's gone sideways on the people I care about. And I've had the flexibility and resources. I mean, last year, one of my siblings, or not last year, the year before, um, had a really big downturn in life and basically couldn't manage their life. They were already disabled and they were just crashing. And I had the flexibility in my life, in my relationships and in my work that I could fly back and forth five times in a year to help right the ship. And I have a big ongoing responsibility to my sibling now just to help keep them organized so their life doesn't fall apart. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't, who would have a traditional monogamous relationship doing that kind of thing would be like, that's a little too much. You know, you're, you're not really here in this relationship or you're putting resources to that that belong to this relationship. It's like, no, I make these decisions about my life and the people I love and nobody else that I'm really close to has the ability to second guess me about that. And sometimes that feels um, a little daunting because I'm taking a lot on my shoulders that a lot of people share and sharing is a valid choice. But ultimately, I'm happier with my decisions and I got a wonderful life. And oh, I couldn't be happier with it. And, and really, if 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 anybody uh, gets anything out of that book, it's just that you have options. And even if you want to keep doing what you're doing, make it a conscious choice. 
but cultivate the skill to renegotiate because I guarantee at some point you're going to need to. I agree. And I, I would encourage everyone to explore explore it, explore the book and explore the concepts, even if you are in on the escalator or you want to ride the escalator. I think it's it's very important that we are aware of what we're doing and that we're thinking critically and open to creative new kinds of options that actually meet our needs and those of the everyone around us, because they think it leads to a better, healthier world. We, when we get to show up as our best selves, then we provide better for others and we strengthen the whole web of the whole culture. Because when mm-hmm. we're feeling fulfilled and good and 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 inspired and our needs are being met, we, we show up completely differently with our family, with our work friends, with everyone. It's just, we're coming from a place of my cup overfloweth rather than I am depleted and empty and sad. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. so more of us getting more of our needs met is one of my priorities in life, helping more of us get more of our needs met more of the time. And I and, think and, and creating room to change, because guess what? You and everybody, you know, is going to change a lot. Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So here's to evolution and growth and change. I roll with it. Yeah. But thank you. I've really enjoyed this discussion. It, it's been wonderful. Good.